Out of the deep have I called unto you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. May the words of my mouth, the meditation of all our hearts, be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. As we come to the conclusion of our series on the seven signs in the Gospel of John, I I once again found myself unable to get out of my head that 1971, pretty much a one-hit wonder by the Canadian rock band The Staccatos, later known as the Five Man Electrical Band, and their song was titled Signs, and the refrain Anyone close to my age probably remembers. Sign, sign, everywhere a sign, blocking out the scenery, breaking my mind. Do this, don't do that. Can't you read the signs? Can't you read the signs? Chapters 1 through 12 of John's Gospel are often called the Book of Signs. And throughout the fall, we've been looking at these seven signs. And we've learned that John recorded these seven specifically, had a purpose for telling us these seven, and in the order that he told them to us, such that when he gets to after the resurrection in chapter 20, he writes the following, chapter 20, verse 30. He says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's our overarching theme of this entire series and John's purpose in all seven of these signs. We remind you again what those are. The first sign we looked at, the changing of water into the wine at the wedding in Cana of Galilee. Secondly, the healing of the royal official's son. Third, the healing of the paralytic. Fourth, Jesus walking on the water. Fifth, giving sight to the man born blind. And then the raising of Lazarus. The raising of Lazarus and the the resurrection of Lazarus or the the bringing to life of Lazarus this morning. And we've highlighted time and time again that a sign, a sign points to something beyond itself. But the challenge has been with these signs is that they're so familiar. These stories are so familiar to us that we often look intently at them and the dimensions and the aspects of the sign And we fail to see what they're pointing to. Now, we're not alone in this challenge, as it were. Because with most of the stories, you'll recall that John tells us how how some got it. How some saw the sign and and knew what it meant and and moved forward in their faith. But, But others missed it. But our goal has been for us to to slow down and to to not allow that that tape that sometimes runs in our heads when we hear a very, very familiar biblical story and and we already kind of have in our mind its conclusion or its point or its meaning or or maybe one dimension of it that really just kind of captivates us. And so we hear it read and we just go right there and, and we miss 
a lot that John is trying to give us to point us to Jesus and to show us. And so our goal has been to try to see with our own eyes what he's been pointing us to, the the truth he's revealing. And along the way, we have observed, I I believe, some things that maybe we haven't seen before that that have given us a a fresh awareness of a truth that we probably already knew and a depth of the understanding of these signs that we might not have. So I, I found it myself very meaningful and exciting, and I've heard from some of you all the same sort of understanding. And so let me just interject here as a sidebar sort of note this morning that all of our sermons from this series are on the church's website, um, and each week we've had a bit of a study for small groups or for your own personal study that have been available, and we have copies of those, including this morning's, which is in the narthex on the rack that's right there. That, so you might want to go a little deeper and, and explore this, each one of these signs a bit, a bit more. Take advantage of it because it's there. And as we've said, these signs were specifically chosen by John, and they've built on each other. They culminate in this morning's, which is most often described as the greatest of these signs, the, the raising of Lazarus from the dead. But here too, again this morning, our familiarity with that sign, I suggest, can cause us, maybe not some problems now that I think about it, but it can cause us to miss some really. There are a couple of things that I would suggest to you this morning in this particular sign that are like, wow, kind of moments for us. And I I hope that'll be your experience as we go through it this morning, because this morning what I'd like to do is I would like to indeed walk through this sign. Now, I, I was thinking as Father Kendall was reading the gospel this morning, I was reminded of my, uh, one of my beloved siblings, my brother, who is a bit critical of preachers at times, and uh, he, uh, he comments about one in particular that they, uh, they read the gospel, and then they put it up on the screen verse by verse and go through it again, and he kind of complains about that, and I thought about that a little too late, I'm afraid, because that's exactly what we're going to do this morning. Um, so don't tell my brother, if you will. We'll just kind of keep it between us. But, but the point of my doing this this morning, at least the way I see it, is to show you and let us all see some of these nuggets, these, this gift that God has given us to this sign about our Christian life that John wants us to see, these signs that point us to that truth that he says these signs were really for us. So we begin um, with the death of Lazarus in chapter 11 of John's gospel. Um, hopefully most of what I'm going to do is going to be on the screen, but if you don't, we're in John's gospel, the 11th chapter, and we're beginning with the first verse. He says, now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Well, John opens up by letting us know that this story happens to be about one of Jesus' closest friends, very close friends. It's the brother of the two sisters, Mary and Martha, that we're all very familiar with. Their home, Jesus, has come and visited and spent time with them. And now Lazarus is ill. 
And so the sisters are concerned about his well-being and his health, and they turn to Jesus. And right away, we get a clue that something deeper is going on in this story. Jesus says, this illness does not lead to death. Now again, remember, our minds know this story. This is a very familiar story. And and I think John and the Lord both knew that that would be the case. And so for us, we jump way ahead and say, well, wait a minute, he does die. He does. We we know he dies. We we know the story. So, So what is Jesus trying to do here? So he emphasizes it with the second thing that he says. It's the next thing. He says, it is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, we're going to find a theme that's going to be repeating itself over and over and over that I can simply describe right now as this story is not about Lazarus. We think it is. That's who we remember. That's who we talk about. That's what we all focus on. But this story is not about Lazarus. Now, this sounds familiar. It should, because last week, when Jesus' disciples asked about the man born blind, Jesus said it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. And last week, Father Kendall pointed out the fact that we don't even know this guy's name. He's the man who was born blind. And we don't even know his parents. His parents, ask his parents, who are his parents as far as we know? We don't know. Because his healing was a sign. He's not who the story is really about either. Here we know who it is. It's Lazarus. But again, his being raised is the sign pointing to Jesus' death and resurrection. One author notes the irony. Lazarus's healing and raising leads to Jesus's death. We don't read beyond this morning, but if you go back and look in chapter 11 and continue on past the story, you'll find that this very sign results in them plotting to kill Jesus and to take him and move on to his death and resurrection. His being raised to the dead, to life, sends Jesus to the cross. So we go on in chapter 11, verses 5 through 7. John says, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to his disciples, Let us go to Judea again. What? He loved them, so he stayed two more days. Let me ask you a question. I wonder, have you ever had to wait for God's answer to a prayer of yours? Have you ever had to wait that when you've asked God for something and that that maybe you needed desperately, that you were on your knees pleading for God... And yet you had to wait. The answer didn't come on your time. Michael Youssef at All Saints Church in Atlanta says, the purpose of God in your life and not your immediate need matters the most. 
the purpose of God in your life and not your immediate need matters the most. There's always a purpose for his delay. There is always a reason for his timing. Always a purpose for his delay. Always a reason for his timing. Now don't forget, John starts this by saying, now Jesus loved Martha and his sister, her sister, and Lazarus. He loved them. You see, his motive, his purpose, his timing are all dependent on his love. We can trust and rest assured that though it's not on our time and though it's not maybe even in our way, that God's motive in answering our prayers is his love because he loves you. Another scholar says this story presents a paradox worth remembering in times of doubt. God loves his children. Sometimes God delays in responding to his children's needs. We may not know why he delays, but this story affirms that a delay does not equal a loss of love. The disciples, on the other hand, of course, don't want Jesus to go back to Judea at all. They say, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you're going to go there again? You see, they're concerned about Jesus' welfare and about where he's going and what he's doing because they know that if he goes back to Judea, the chances are he's going to be crucified. He's going to be killed. He may be stoned to death. Do you remember back to our first miracle, back to when Jesus was with his mother and they came and they asked him to, to do something about the lack of wine that was there? And what did he say? My hour has not yet come. We learn from this sign this morning, there is always a purpose for his delay. There is always a reason for his timing. So now, after two days, Jesus and his disciples go to Bethany. And they learn there that, on the way, that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now, it might be a small, uh, seemingly insignificant uh, point, but but John wants us to know this, this is being set up perfectly so that the sign will point to Jesus. And so there was at that time a, a pretty common belief that when someone had died that, that for those first three days or so after their death, there was still a, a possibility that uh, they might be resuscitated or that their spirit had not fully left from them yet and so they weren't completely dead. John wants us to know that Lazarus was totally, completely dead. So as they approach to Bethany, Martha comes out to meet Jesus, and she has a very powerful conversation with him in, again, verses 21 through 27. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, 
I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. On this conversation, on this scene, the entire sign hinges. If there was any doubt up to this point that the sign was about about Lazarus, now it's confirmed that it's not. This sign is about Jesus. This sign is about his power and his life. And subsequently, what we discover is that Mary comes up and has a similar conversation with Jesus about the same issue. She asks the same questions. Both of them highlight for us that that this really isn't about their brother. We often call this sign so ourselves the healing of the raising or the, the, even the resurrection of Lazarus, when in fact it's the story of Jesus' revelation that he is the resurrection and the life. Listen again to what he says. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he dies, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. One of my favorite stories from Don Piper's book, 90 Minutes in Heaven, it's one that he tells about a faithful parishioner after he has had a near-death experience. He goes back to pastoring in his church, and he's conducting the services of a funeral of one of the members of his congregation, and he's speaking about the last moments of this particular person's life while they were near death and dying themselves in the hospital and by the hospital bed he tells the story of this woman and her faith and he says to the congregation gathered he says she knew that if she died she would be with the Lord and if she lived the Lord will be with her if those words sound familiar they should for all of us because St. Paul in Romans chapter 14, which we recite as we enter into the church on the occasion of the funeral of someone as the body is brought into the church, these words of Scripture we declare, for no one of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. I am the resurrection and the life. Here in this sign of John's gospel comes one of the seven times where Jesus declares his reality of who he is. These what are known as the I am statements. Statements that reveal Jesus' true identity. I am the name that God revealed to Moses back in the burning bush when Moses asked, who should I tell them is sending me? God says, tell them, I am send you. Jesus declares he and God, he is God. And he has the power even over death. And to this, of course, Martha declares, yes, Lord. I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God who's coming into the world. There it is. The sign revealed, the sign recognized, and the truth of the sign declared by her. Remember why John uses these signs? That you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing you may have life in his name. Here is the purpose 
revealed in our sign this morning. As I suggest, Mary comes as well and she has a similar conversation, but in her case, there's a bunch of grief as well. There's a, a tremendous amount of grief. The, John describes that the, the Jews gathered around together and Mary herself are, are weeping. And Mary actually falls at Jesus' feet weeping. And we're in verses 33 through 35. And John says, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. What a powerful scene. Jesus wept. The shortest verse in the Bible. And the Jews said, see how he loved him. See how he loved him. See, I think the sign points even more so for us in today's world because we recognize that Jesus shares the pain and loss of the death of a loved one, just like we do. He knows our pain. He knows the grief that we go through when a loved one dies and, and we grieve ourselves. He's like us that he knows those, the depth of the emotions. And we see it portrayed beautifully. There's so much more in that very scene this morning. Many of you have heard me say, and, and I must admit a couple of you look a little scant when I say it, but after so many funerals um, over so many years, I've come to the, to the understanding and the statement that I say, I hate death. I hate death. I see what's left in its wake. I see the damage it does to families and to children, to spouses, to loved ones, to communities when, when large numbers are taken away all at once. I hate death. But so does Jesus. Author, author Anthony Salvaggio writes, the use of the two Greek words that John uses, and he, he describes, he's talking about these two where we see that Jesus, is, he says in verse 33, when Jesus saw Mary weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And then he says in verse 38, Jesus deeply moved again and came to the tomb. To the tomb. Those two Greek words that he's using indicate an emotion greater than simply human grief. It's much more than that. It is that, but it's much more than that. Andres Kostenhegger writes, Jesus is shown here not so much to express just empathy or grief as to bristle at this imminent encounter with and assault on death. Jesus is coming to do battle with death. He's filled with anger because he's standing in the presence of the great enemy, death. And as Jesus approaches the tomb of Lazarus, he's preparing himself with this adversary. John Calvin describes it in his commentary as follows. He says, as Jesus approaches the tomb of Lazarus like a wrestler preparing for a contest, he was outraged by the presence of death and was preparing himself to combat it. Like a horse that snorts prior to attacking an enemy, Jesus was readying himself 
for the great battle at the tomb. While death is master of all born in Adam, it had no mastery over Jesus. Jesus was sovereign over this enemy. So like a general barking orders to a subordinate, Jesus cries out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. Death had no choice. It had to obey Jesus' command. Pointing to Jesus' own resurrection to come out himself. The stone rolling away and Lazarus comes out. Verse 44 says, The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a linen with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Now, I don't, I don't know about you, but for me, when I picture this scene and I see it happening, and I see Lazarus coming out and I, I see them unbinding all those straps, I'm thinking to myself, wow, how exciting. Isn't this awesome? Lazarus raised from the dead. He's here in that great and great enthusiasm and a great joy and, and just an abundance of that, right? But John doesn't say a word about that. John doesn't mention that. John doesn't say anything about that. He doesn't say anything about the people's response to Lazarus being brought back to dead. You know, there's a celebration about Lazarus because this is a sign. This is a sign pointing to something beyond. We're not stopping with Lazarus' resurrection and saying, boy, everything's great, let's go back home. No, we're pointing to Jesus who will now go to the cross, who will be crucified, dead and buried, to be raised on the third day to overcome death for everyone because I am the resurrection and the life. John is concerned with the glory of God and the faith of the believers, and he's pointing to the death and resurrection of Jesus. He's not as wrapped up, as it were, pun intended, about Lazarus. The raising of Lazarus was only a prelude to Jesus' battle against all the forces of evil. While the seventh sign was the greatest of these seven signs, it pales in comparison to Jesus' victory over death on the cross. The seventh sign points towards Jesus' death and resurrection, and it singles the day on which Jesus will bring all of his people forth from the grave on the great day of the general resurrection. What? A powerful sign. I'm reminded of those words of that hit song again. Can you read the sign? Sadly, as we've suggested time and again, John reminds us in the verses 45 and 46. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So John reminds us that with these signs, we can still, some might not see the sign. Others will. I read a, a story about lots of cemeteries, especially in the Midwest, where there's a tradition that apparently lots of folks um, have done. I don't think we have any in ours. I'm not sure. Um, there's a poem that uh, some folks put on their tombstones. And it reads as follows. Pause, stranger, when you pass by me, as you are now, so once was I, as I am now, so you will be, so prepare for death 
and follow me. Well, an unknown passerby on one of those tombstones scrawled in a a little bit of an additional epithet to that and said, to follow you, I'm not content until I know which way you went. (laughs) These signs, especially the seventh one, all point us to Jesus and to the glory of God. They guide us in this life. And as John said, they are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Let us pray. Oh, Father, I thank you for the gift that your servant John has given to us in reporting these signs as a part of his gospel to point us in the direction of eternal life beginning here in this life and for telling us the truth that your son Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the resurrection. May we experience that life today. May we put our trust in him today. And whether we live or we die, may we be his. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.